ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, I'm Selena Green. Welcome to The Country Hour today. Now, do you have an idea of just how much carbon there is in your soil or even how to measure it? Well, you'll hear about a new project here in South Australia that's working on that and how you can be a part of it very shortly. And we'll take a look across the sea to what's happening in the farming scene in the United States, where there's been a mass exodus of families from the land. Over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. Yes, that is the voice of the US President Joe Biden, and you'll hear how he plans to change that soon. I'm always happy to hear your voice. If you want to give me a call on the talkback number, it's 1300 222 or the text line is 0467 922 Well, first up today, South Australian grain producers have the opportunity to take part in a project to measure carbon on their soil. Grain Producers SA is involved in what's called the Soil Carbon Innovation Challenge Project. They're looking for up to 15 growers to take part. Grain producer CEO Brad Perry says soil analyst company Farm Lab will come and take samples and the results can be used into the future. Yeah, we were lucky enough, uh, Brooke, to um, be part of the federal government's uh, soil uh, innovation, soil carbon innovation challenge. So um, we're a partner. So we're one of um, a number of groups, in, in fact, several in, uh, in South Australia that's part of a project being led led by Farm Lab, um, so it's a $1.8 million project. As part of that, we're in the uh, the grain component, so we're looking for um, some grain producers in South Australia to uh, put their hand up. Um, we've already had uh, quite a few actually already, which is fantastic um, to have uh, their soil carbon uh, measured so they'll have it sampled and, and lab tested. And we're basically looking at, uh, yeah, looking at, at carbon levels in, in the soil and, and analysis for that and, and how that can be improved. So that, it's all part of a bigger project, um, but the individual farmer also gets those results as well. Um, and it's all about uh, having a look at that sustainability picture. Uh, are many farmers taking samples of their soil already? It's quite expensive to do at the moment, Brooks. So I think that's one of the things that's holding back, um, you know, widespread spread testing in this way. Um, there's certainly some that, that are, but they're not doing it on um, the level that, that Farm Lab will be doing it. So this is yeah, this is a, a, a next level up of soil sampling, um, looking at 18 locations on the property So um, and going down as far as 30 centimetres in, in one sample and then uh, 60, 30 to 60 centimetres depth in the next. So, um, yeah, this is a, a really intensive project and, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, response and results are from this because, uh, yeah, we're going to try and get growers from uh, right across the state. So Mallee, uh, York Peninsula, Peninsula and the Mid-North, I think, uh, are the general uh, consensus at the moment of, of those who have put their hand up. But, yeah, certainly looking for, for anyone interested right across South Australia. Is it something that Grain Producers SA can take these results and use, you know, into the future um, when it comes to, to carbon and, and soil? Yeah, that's right. So we'll be using these as we any project that we're doing um, in the sustainability field. We've 
made sure that obviously they're identifying the results, but that we have um, that we have access to those results. And the intention is to to use those where we can and publish those publicly as well. I think it's important that we do continue to provide some of the results across South Australia, not only from an education perspective, but also um, because we, we want more and more grain producers to be doing this. And, and when we say we, it's not only from a, from a GPSA point of view, it's, it really is about uh, markets and, um, you know, banks and those sort of people are looking for um, data. So I think it's the, the more data that we can collect, is going to be better for the industry as a whole. And do they, the producers, if they're wanting to put their hand up for this, do they need to do much apart from just letting them have access to their, their property? No, that's right. So it's really, um, yeah, it's not, not an intensive project from their involvement. Obviously, there'll be, uh, you know, a point where they'll get the results back and, and there'll be some discussion to try and analyse those. So there's some assistance there. But otherwise, it really is just letting um, the farm lad team on the property who will take those uh, soil samples. And you touched on this a bit, Brad, but why would this be such a good opportunity for, for SA grain producers? Oh, look, firstly, it's a really unique project um, where we're able to collect some, some really strong data, which, are, which I've mentioned, but um, also with the cost, there's a, around about to do this whole process, um, if Farm Lab were charging, it'd be about uh, approximately $6,000 per farm just because there's so many samples and at different depth. So, look, really good opportunity, I think, with uh, with no cost to the producer to get involved. You know, we'll get we'll get data. Data will be used too in the overall project, and the farmer themselves will get um, that data on an individual level. So, look, I, I think it's a really unique opportunity. And for us at, at GPSA, we want to keep uh, getting involved in these sort of projects, and and we're trying to be at the forefront of this. Whether um, you know whether we like it or not, sustainability is an issue that governments, markets banks, etc., all looking at. So we really need to, to be at the forefront and get ahead of this on behalf of uh, grain producers across the state. That is the CEO of Grain Producers South Australia, Brad Perry, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. So for more information, go to the Grain Producers SA website or register your interest by sending your name and contact details to info at grainproducerssa, all as one word, .com.au. With Selena Green, it's 11 minutes past 12. Well, the hyper-yielding crops project is continuing continuing around Australia with GRDC funding sites across SA, New South Wales and Victoria to improve yields for wheat, barley and canola. Nick Poole is the Field Applied Research Australia's Managing Director and hyper-yielding crop project lead. He was at the site in Haverley earlier this month for its annual field day. He told Elsie Adamo that while the crops aren't likely to break any records this season, they're still looking strong. Yeah, we're very pleased with how things look at this stage, whether we're able to achieve the very highest yields that we saw in the project in 2021 remains to be seen. But yes, we're pleased with how things look at the moment and hoping that we can uh, uh, perhaps not break records, but uh, certainly get, you know, nine, ten tonne in our cereals and five tonnes in our canola. How is the South Australian crops looking in comparison to the Victoria and New South Wales locations? Yeah, I think that the the Millicent South Australian trials uh, are looking very good and possibly the one that we're least concerned about in terms of moisture stress at this moment in time. That's not to say we we couldn't do with a drink at all three of those uh, research sites, but certainly Millicent looking 
yeah, that lower southeast looking very good at this moment in time. Yes, we're going into slightly different weather conditions than in previous years. How is that going to be affecting? Well, that's uh, probably one of the interesting aspects of the experiment this this year. We've we're off of uh, effectively three years of a La Nina weather pattern. And so this sort of slightly drier, tighter finish, we're looking forward to seeing just how that affects results, particularly with things like the genetics of the germplasm we've been using, because in South Australia in particular, we've had great success with European wheats and barleys that are probably more suited to those longer season scenarios. So this year will be a great test as to which ones of them stand up best when the conditions start to get tighter with regards to soil moisture stress. And any early predictions on that? Well, I think that we've got some great candidates coming through, actually, that look as if they might be the kind of genetics that can we say give us flexibility to cope with either uh, a drier finish or a, a wetter finish and although 2022 was certainly a, a wet finish there's <laughs> there are some occasions when you can have too much rain and 2022 was definitely one of those seasons where we had so much rainfall that the soils during grain fill were were literally going anaerobic because there was so much water in the soil and and therefore the crops were trying to grain fill at a stage when literally we had transient water logging in in the topsoil underneath those plants and that's a very very unusual circumstance we might get that in early spring but not in late october early november which is what we were experiencing in 2022. And part of what is good about these days is, you know, bringing everyone in the region together and being able to talk with the farmers. What are some of the feedback you've been hearing from them? How are they feeling about the industry at this moment? I, I, I think that there's still, there's, there's buoyancy within the industry. Yes, there's uncertainty. Is Are we entering a period of drier, more austere years. Sometimes for the higher rainfall zones, prediction of drier conditions is is not always a bad thing, particularly if those drier conditions are actually encountered over the winter and early spring, because in many parts of what we refer to as the sort of southern high rainfall zone of Australia, it's actually winter water logging that can have the most negative effects on the yields of our cereal and canola crops. And so sometimes in years that are a little bit too austere for our main grain belt, the high rainfall zones can actually benefit through not being waterlogged in that winter, early spring period. That's Far Australia's Nick Poole, and he was speaking there with Elsie Adamo. Well, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, has made his pitch to stop the mass exit of family farms in his country. Speaking from a barn at a family-owned farm in Minnesota, the President promised more than $5 billion in funds for more competition in meat processing, programs for more job growth and what he termed climate-smart agriculture. It's a wide-ranging plan that is trying to address similar problems to those being faced by Australian farmers. Warwick Long has this report. I am beyond honoured to welcome and introduce President 
Joe Biden. Standing next to a green tractor and in front of a large American flag at the farm of Brad Kluver, President Joe Biden laid out his plan to stop the exodus of farms in his country over the decades. Hello, hello, hello. Over the past 40 years or so, we've had a practice in America, economic practice called trickle-down economics. And it hit rural America especially hard. It hollowed out Main Street, telling farmers the only path to success was to get big or get out. Tax cuts for big corporations encouraged companies to grow bigger and bigger, move jobs and production overseas for cheaper labor, and undercut local small businesses. Meat-producing companies and the retail grocery chains consolidate, leaving farmers with ranchers with few choices about where to sell their products, reducing their bargaining power. You know, in part because of these conditions, over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. So that's the problem. What is the president's solution? Well, $5 billion in programs were announced to stop family farmers leaving agriculture and start getting younger people to return to middle America. The president says it's his type of economics that will deliver the best outcome for agriculture in America. And the money's there to help farmers and ranchers tackle climate crisis through climate smart agriculture and cover crops. Nutrient management. It's not great. Sorting carbon in the soil. Under our plan, farmers can diversify and earn additional income just selling into the local markets. Let me give you an example. When a farmer sells his commodities normally, you have to go through the grocery store and the farmers get about 18 cents for every, every dollar they have. Sometimes you get less than that. Some, some, but, but when a farmer sells locally, the farmers can get anything from 50 to 75 cents for their same exact product. We're also promoting competition in agricultural markets. Just four big corporations control more than half the market in beef, pork, and poultry. And because so few companies control so much of the market, if one of those processing plants goes offline, it can cause massive supply chain disruptions, slowing production, and cost farmers big. It happened to Brad. When processing plants shut down during the pandemic and he had to rely on social media to sell us hogs. Folks, look, there's something wrong when just 7% of the American farms get nearly 90%. 7% get 90% of the farm income. When I took office, I decided to invest a billion dollars through the American Rescue Plan and small and medium-sized independent meat processors to expand their capacity. Today, I'm proud to announce new funding that will go directly to rural communities. One billion dollars to fix aging critical rural infrastructure like electric water, like electricity, water, wastewater systems. We're investing millions in building new bioeconomy and with homegrown biofuels to be able to achieve it. And folks, this is just a start. Today I'm announcing we're investing nearly $2 billion to help more farmers adopt practices to fight climate change and earn new income. 
We're investing $145 million for farmers and rural communities to install clean energy technologies like solar panels and lowering electric bills. An additional $274 million to expand rural high-speed internet even further. $2 billion to support communities in our rural partners network, which puts federal employees on the ground to help rural communities take advantage of the federal resources, let them know what they are and where they are. Minnesota was chosen because Joe Biden's first challenger for the Democratic nomination of the presidency is coming from Minnesota. So the president was at pains to push for rural American voters and support ahead of his push for re-election, which is to come next year. When rural America does well, when Indian country does well, we all do well. As the President of the United States, Joe Biden, ending that report from Warwick Long. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's just going on 22 minutes past 12. Time to find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market. Now for that, we're joined by John Traeger. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Numbers reduced by 150 head as agents offered 640 live weight and open oxen cattle. The majority of the offering included 340 steers, 120 heifers and 126 cows. Quality was again extremely mixed, however some ideally finished grown steers and heifers were also included. The usual trade and process of buyers were in attendance and operating, along with feeder activity and some interest from restockers on lighter cattle. Prices for the better end of the cattle remained generally unchanged, with lighter and inferior cattle selling according to type and condition. Vila steers sold from 101 to 249 cents, as Vila heifers sold from 97 to 220 cents. Ealing steers sold from 120 to 209 cents, with yielding heifers selling from 120 to 211 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 97 to 225 cents, as grown steers ranged from 119 to 237 cents, with grown heifers selling from 80 cents to 227 cents. Dairy cows sold from 20 cents to 155 cents, as beef cows ranged from 60 to 197 cents. Yielding bulls sold from 70 to 207 cents, as heavy bulls sold from 141 to 215 cents a kilogram. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. John Traeger with that report. We're about to head off to the Weather Bureau in just a sec. Uh, but just before we head there, just letting you know that uh, you may have heard there's been quite a bit of dry lightning pass through the northwest pastoral area in about the last well, 36 hours, predominantly within the APY land. So that has caused, I'm told by the Country Fire Service, uh, a number of fires to ignite and the fire extends from the West Australian border through to Urnabella. So uh, the CFS does have a warning message in place uh, and you can go to their website if you'd like to see their most up-to-date information, cfs.sa.gov.au. There are crews up there uh, and around that area continuing to monitor the situation with the support from SAPOL and other agencies. Uh, We're told that communities within the vicinity of the fires have fire breaks surrounding them and they're being advised to stay within the prescribed bushfire 
are safer places. But members of the public travelling through the APY lands do need to remain vigilant and make sure they've got their bushfire survival plans should the situation change. So just be aware of the situation. And as I said, the CFS website is a good way to keep across what the latest information is about those fires. CFS.sa. .gov.au. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now where Simon Timkey is our forecaster today. Hello, Simon. Hi, Selena. Well, we're into the last month of spring on the calendar. What has it got in store for us? We are. Well, interesting to hear you talk about those thunderstorms over the northwest pastoral. We, they, they were associated with a, a trough through the middle levels of the atmosphere that is continuing to move eastward. So we're still seeing a few thunderstorms over the north, but, but further east now, looking on the satellite picture at the moment, a couple of storms just near, near Tarkula, just to the east of uh, Kubapedi and, and up around Udnadatta as well. And those were even a couple a little bit further east than that too. So like the ones uh, during the last 36 hours or so further west, these storms are, are mostly dry, not producing very much in the way of rainfall, if anything, reaching the ground. The, the low levels of the atmosphere are very dry up there and so it's mostly, the rainfall's mostly evaporating before reaching the ground. So most of that lightning is dry and continues to um, have the potential to, to start some, some fires over those areas as well, I guess. So uh, that will continue today and gradually contract northwards tomorrow. So that, that risk still continues of isolated showers and thunderstorms in the north, but with little rainfall reaching the ground. Further south, there, there is still a little bit of high cloud, um, but not expecting any, uh, any showers uh, out of that further, further south. Um, There'll be some fresh sea breezes near the coast uh, this afternoon and evening uh, and, and generally that uh, pattern will continue tomorrow except with those thunderstorms closer to the northern border, I think, during, uh, during Friday. Um, further south uh, on Friday, conditions dry. Uh, the, the winds like today mostly south to southeasterly uh, and we'll again see some fresh to strong sea breezes near the coast on Friday uh, afternoon and, and early evening. Um, into the weekend, not much change again. Uh, we're, we're in a fairly stable pattern at the moment with a, a high pressure ridge over waters to our south uh, and then there's a low pressure system over the north of Western Australia which uh, at times over the next week will extend a, a trough into the northwest of South Australia. So over the weekend, generally drier conditions. There's a chance of the odd light shower near southern coast but not expecting any significant rainfall totals out of it. A chance of some dry thunderstorms again in the far northwest of the state on both Saturday and Sunday, but most of the state will will be dry um, with those south to southeasterly winds again and and fresh to strong sea breezes near the coast uh, each afternoon and early evening, uh, and and similar pattern continuing into early next week. Uh, that that ridge slowly starts to weaken and moves eastwards and we'll see the winds turn around a bit more northeasterly. So we'll see temperatures start to rise. I think by the middle of next week we'll have hot conditions right throughout the state um, and still a chance of some the odd isolated shower or thunderstorm here, mostly in the north and west. But for most of the state, it, it will be mostly dry through the early and middle part of next week, just that odd uh, shower or, or thunderstorm in the north and west at times. And as I said, becoming hot as those uh, those winds turn northeasterly through the uh, through the middle part of next week. As I've mentioned, very little in the way of rainfall over the next, uh, next uh, four days for that period out to the end of Monday, out to midnight Monday, generally less than two millimetres and 
uh, anywhere where that does fall will mostly be over the northwest pastoral district. Uh, and maybe the odd spot pick up a tiny bit more with a thunderstorm here or there, 2 to 10 millimetres, but mostly they will be dry, I think. Uh, further south, just isolated falls of less than a millimetre near southern coast. So not really much in the way of rainfall to talk about over the mm. next week, uh, Selena. It doesn't sound like it. All right, thanks for that, Simon. Thanks, Selena. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for tomorrow for the Upper Western District. Mostly sunny in the morning. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the afternoon and into the evening as well, with southerly winds 15 to 25 k's an hour. For the lower western district, it'll be partly cloudy, with light winds becoming southerly 20 to 30 k's an hour in the morning. Now, overnight temperatures for both districts falling uh, somewhere around the mid teens, with daytime temperatures reaching up into the low to mid 30s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the country hour, and this next half an hour is it time for an inquiry into the prices that supermarkets are charging? Well, farmers are struggling to make a profit. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Very busy half an hour coming up. Now, Canada has been a big buyer of Australian wine, but that's on the slide. So what kind of wines do Canadian drinkers want? Well, there's a delegation from Quebec who's in our state at the moment. You'll hear from them. You'll also hear why more trees are being cut down in Adelaide's northeast and... Is it time for a public inquiry into supermarket price gouging? We can learn what's really happening in the middle and is there profiteering and price gouging going on or not? I'm suspicious, I think, when there's a fall in costs, you'd want it to come through in prices pretty quickly. More on that soon. I'm keen to get your thoughts on this one today on my talkback number, which is 1300 991 or on the text line, which is 0467 922 Before any of that, Matt Coleman is here to give you the news. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, an Adelaide family that was trapped in Gaza has escaped. The man, his wife and their two children aged 7 and 10 were visiting relatives in Gaza when the bombing began. The man, who's requested anonymity, has told the ABC he feared for their lives constantly during the past few weeks, with bombings just metres away from where they were sheltering. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says he's received no advice from the federal government that the Naval Frigate Building Program could be moved from South Australia to Scotland. The federal government has recently obtained results of a 90-day review into its surface shipbuilding program but has not revealed its recommendations. There's also a report from News Limited of high-level speculation that the frigate program could be moved from Osborne. And the Adelaide Airport has announced plans for a second pick-up and drop-off lane under a $1 billion investment program, the upgrade is part of a five-year spending plan, which will also include an expanded check-in hall with extra security. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, it's been a busy week of hearings in the Senate as the Upper House of Federal Parliament examines the Water Minister's proposed reset of the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Now, the changes would extend the deadline by two years, give time for states to develop plans to save water in exchange for money from the Commonwealth and 
water buybacks. Victoria is the only state not to sign up to the amendments. Well, yesterday's Senate hearing heard from environment and Indigenous groups, irrigators, food processors, basin community members and finally basin authorities. Environment groups say they want the bill to be strengthened to guarantee more water is recovered. Craig Wilkins from the Conservation Council of South Australia gave evidence. He joins me now. Thanks for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. And you had an opportunity to uh, to give some evidence to this uh, inquiry yesterday. Oh, what was the main point that you really wanted to drive home as part of this hearing? Yeah, it was a really good opportunity to um, get in front of the Senate um, members who will be deciding on uh, the, the bill before Parliament, which will really reset, um, hopefully for the, for the better, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So. The most important thing I was keen to get across was to um, just remind people about what happened during the millennium drought. Um, it certainly seared into my memory and the memory of most South Australians, I think. You know, there was there was a visceral fear at, at that time around what would happen if we didn't get it right in terms of you know, the whole region of South Australia was under serious ecological uh, risk. We had contingency plans for bottled water for, for people. There were... You know, nightly images of, of, of farmers and irrigators and, and communities and, and turtles and everyone just really struggling. And so um, I was really keen to just remind uh, the politicians that if we don't get the plan right, we will be back there again because you know, in many ways we've had Goldilocks weather um, in South Australia for, for a while. The, the climate's been quite kind to us in terms of uh, of water, um, but with El Nino uh, coming, it's it's going to change, and we really need to seize this opportunity to fix up the plan and 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 and, and get those guarantees that we need that the water will be delivered. With the proposed amendments to the bill and the, the changes that the the federal water minister is looking to get through, do you feel that that would give any more of a guarantee of South Australia receiving the water it needs? I think there's some really good shifts in, in the bill um, and the opportunity to have more tools in the toolkit to get that water back is, is really welcome. But it, it does come at a cost, and, and that cost is the extension of time that uh, upstream states have been given to uh, deliver on parts of the plan. And, and I, I suppose that's, that's part of my, my concern is that unless there are really um, ironclad legislative guarantees written into into the bill and therefore into the Act, we will have um, potentially just kicked the can along the road. And, and you know, in, in five years' time, we might be having exactly the same conversation with lots of proposals to get, to get the water, but no actual delivery. So that's the real moment with the, and, and real opportunity that the politicians face now. And and you know, South Australians have been called upon to, to compromise, to be reasonable, uh, to accept political reality all the way through the last you know, 10 years of the plan. But uh, you know, it is now time for action. Do you have concerns about uh, Victoria's unwillingness to, to sign on to these changes? Yeah, it's a really interesting time in terms of, you know, there's a lot of dynamics going on. Um, you know, there's a relatively new minister federally um, who is, uh, appears you know, keen to make change. But there is, as there has always been, resistance um, from upstream states um, to perhaps deliver what was promised back then. And so those dynamics are, are really critical to sort out. 
and the federal parliament is now stepping in to, to help make that happen. Um, no, we, we don't know what that will mean, but we, um, we have to focus on getting that water, real water, um, delivered because so much of what has been promised in the past has yet to eventuate. Craig Wilkins, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour this afternoon. Thank you. My pleasure. Craig Wilkins from the Conservation Council of South Australia. It is 24 minutes to one. Well, a delegation from Quebec is bringing some much-needed optimism to the wine industry. Australian wine exports to Canada are down, but the team from the Société d'Alcuse du Québec, pardon my abysmal French, but SAQ, well, they say it's because younger consumers are looking for drops that are fun and fresh rather than bold and full-bodied. Supported by Wine Australia, the reps are visiting wine regions here in South Australia and also in Tasmania, Victoria and New South Wales. Eliza Berlage has this story. In the afternoon sun on the banks of the Murray River, South Australian winemakers poured out their wines and hopes. Between mouthfuls of Murray cod, small innovative winemakers showcased and pitched their products to SAQ. Last year, the multi-billion dollar purchaser, which is the sole provider of alcohol into the Canadian province of Quebec, reported table wines making up more than 70% of sales and a 15% growth of natural and organic wines. Supported by Wine Australia, the delegation is making stops in the Barossa, the Riverland, McLaren Vale, the Yarra Valley, Tasmania and the Hunter Valley. My name is Mark Olivier. I'm working for the SAQ. Uh, we're right now in the, the Riverland. So, yes, we're really enjoying ourselves right now. And I understand you've had the enviable job today of meeting a lot of uh, winemakers from the Riverland and trying some of their wines. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, this is the, probably the greatest part of our job, so we need to uh, travel and meet the wine producers. For the uh, Quebec region, Riverland is becoming more and more important because there's a lot of innovation coming out from the region and a lot of diversity as well, so... I think this kind of wine really fits the uh, Quebecois palette. The winemakers were saying that people in Quebec are, you know, they're not necessarily wanting what Australians think Quebecois want. They want what Australians would drink. Well, in fact, uh, we've been struggling in the past few years. I think COVID didn't help as well. The Quebecois profile taste is really uh, fitting the Europe profile, I would say, so the France, the Italian, the Spain as well. So I consider that there's an old Australian uh, category and there's a new uh, new generation as well that's pushing a little bit the boundaries. And I feel that those young generation are maybe fitting a bit more what we're looking for. We got kind of tired of the uh, classic, very powerful, uh, deep uh, fruit. So, yeah, we're looking for something new, fresher, fruit power, and uh, easy-to-drink wines. And I think Riverland really give us that. And do you import many wines at the moment from the Riverland? Uh, well, it's, 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 a, it's a new thing, so I think it's a buzz. Uh, it's starting, but we do have some producers that already doing well in Quebec. I just think about uh, Congreg from Delicuente is a, is a good player for us in the category. But I think those producers that we met today uh, will definitely change the image of what Australian wine are back in, back in Quebec. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to come back and uh, introduce those wines uh, in, in Quebec. Yeah. So some good news from, for some Australian winemakers, hopefully. Well, definitely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We, we have plenty of wine that we, we taste that we'd like to introduce, for sure. And just briefly, you've been to the Barossa as well. You know, that's often seen by a lot of people as the, the most well-known wine region in Australia. You know, what sort of things have you been looking at or hoping to learn there? 
Uh, well, it's funny because I just said that the Quebecois has, has been tired of the uh, very bold wine. And what I've found in the past days, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of surprises to come as well, I think people are really aware of what's going on, all the uh, the palettes evolves of the consumers. And I really think that the uh, Barroso Valley uh, changed the way that they approach the wine as well. And we really discover a lot of wine that are fitting as well, the, uh, the Quebecois palettes. So far, it's been an amazing trip, yeah. Everything is possible because of Wine of Australia, for sure. And uh, But the generosity of the uh, producers is really nice as well. So uh, really, like I said, we're really enjoying ourselves over here. And uh, we, we hope that we, we can help the producers and uh, to to get in our market and uh, be uh, prosperous as well. Because yeah, I'd heard that uh, imports of Australian wine to Canada had had gone down, but perhaps that they were looking for something different. There was too much of something. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, the Australia category is uh, the biggest category of what we call the New World back in Quebec, but it had, it has been decreasing a bit in the past few years. So really looking forward to put back the categories, and I think the people that we meet over here will uh, will definitely help. SAQ Account Director Mark Olivier Rail. So what did the winemakers who showcased their products think of the visit? Brendan Carter runs Adelaide Hills-based winery Unico Zello and buys grapes in the Riverland and the Clare Valley. He says the meeting has been a huge opportunity. Just having the interest from... These are government buyers, so uh, Quebec is a government-run monopoly, and so they determine exactly what wines go into this entire country, and they really are the gatekeepers, the the main people that determine the expression of what Australian wine is going to be in, in an international community. So for them to actually physically come to the Riverland as a point of purpose, as a point of contention, as a point of, of ambition to be able to represent these wines on a world stage is firstly just massive. The ability to even meet them and talk with them and give them some sense of context and narrative as to the reasons why we're here is even greater. We can give them so much more context and so much many more reasons behind why we do what we do, which is going to just, again, beef up that narrative internationally and give us the greatest chance of building the concept of Riverland wine as a brand. You've shared some of your wines with the representatives from SAQ. What sort of wines did you pick and and what were their reactions? So the two wines that we uh, showcased, we showcased a bunch of wines, but the two that predominantly we were very much focused on was one which is a a white blend, aromatic white wine, um, that is made in what's called a skin contact style, or colloquially what we know as an orange wine, known as Esoterico, which uh, has the main variety as Zabibo, or what we would know as Australia in Australia as uh, Fruity Gordo amazing ancient grape variety that is uh, exceptionally undervalued from very old vines planted in the 40s that uh, they were really taken by so it it almost flies somewhat in the face of how we value it because they obviously value it as something incredibly different they can see the venus narrative that it can tell they can see how it fits within our culture they can see how it presents an entirely new face of australian wine the other wine was called fresh af which does what it says it does on the bottle it is a very fresh fun bright vibrant red wine with no tannin which again really flies in the face of traditionally what we know from australia as being you know a a very rich bold tannic structured say red wines and oaky white wines well we're looking at you know more textural aromatic whites Uh, we're also looking at very high acid reds with no tannin uh, crafted from zabibo and neridavla predominantly neridavla but co-fermented with a touch of zabibo to lift the aromatics uh, which they could see a lot of cultural sense in it goes with the food that we have in australia 
and that's you know what they're interested in. They're interested in the in the wines that represent our culture internationally, not wines made in Australia that we think international communities want to consume. They're more interested in something a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more in depth. They're going, what food are you eating in Australia? What climate are you drinking when you're in Australia? Because when that bottle of wine goes across the counter in somewhere like Quebec, someone has made an active decision to buy Australian wine that says wine of Australia on there. They want an Australian experience. They do not want what an Australian thinks a Quebecian wants to drink. That report by Eliza Berlage. It's 16 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, unfortunately, hundreds of pine trees have had to be cut down in parklands in Adelaide's northeast in recent months, around 500 or so, in fact. And this week, you may have seen more being removed around the Hope Valley Reservoir. They're part of an eradication program that's been going on in the Hope Valley and Highbury areas over the past few months. They're being removed because of an outbreak of something called giant pine scale. And the timber industry says it's an unfortunate necessity to avoid a biodiversity disaster. Nathan Payne is the CEO of the South Australian Forest Products Association. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Selena, and good afternoon to your listeners. So firstly, giant pine scale, what is it? So giant pine scale is a pest that impacts, as the name suggests, uh, pine trees. Uh, in particular, it impacts on um, standard pine trees that we grow, but also firs and spruces. Um, it's a scale that basically sucks the sap from the trees. And, and you know, in the longer term, these infected trees uh, uh, do die. So you know, what, what, what happens is the um, giant pine scale... Uh, feeds exclusively on on that plant, and over time, uh, you see limbs die. You'll see the desiccation of the leaves, and then obviously the tree follows. So it's critically important that we work to eradicate this pest from South Australia in order to protect the uh, over twenty one thousand three hundred South Australians who work in the South Australian forest industries. So, I understand what are the the main reasons these trees, infected trees, are coming out is so it doesn't jump into our, our plantation estate. If it was to do that, how devastating would that be? Oh, look, it would absolutely uh, be devastating. We, we, we're very thankful that the government uh, and forestry SA have stepped up. Uh, they've identified this threat. They've worked with industry, and, and we've funded some additional aerial mapping of trees to to try and understand exactly how far. Uh, this uh, this has spread in that region of the kind of the uh, inner northeastern suburbs uh, here in South Australia. So it is still a fair distance away from the estate. Um, but if we don't get on top of this now, we run the risk that it becomes a prevalent uh, pest that will impact on the plantation estate uh, across South Australia, whether that's in the Adelaide Hills and Fleurio region uh, with the Forestry SA estates, uh, or down, of course, in the southeast where we've got 129,000 hectares of pine trees. Uh, those trees are critical for the industry, for job creation, um, but also so that we can provide the, the housing for all South Australians and, and of course, all the other paper products and wood fibre products that we use in our day-to-day lives. Is any idea of uh, how it might have got into South Australia is, is not something that we see that often? Uh, look, it's, it's something that we've seen in that region uh, in the past. So previous giant pine scale detection have been seen at Dernancourt in North Adelaide in 2014 and Highbury in 2018 and was successfully controlled. So, you know, uh, uh, there will be, I'm sure, a uh, conversation with trying to understand exactly uh, how and why, 
uh, this has happened. But the first act thing we need to do is to get in and destroy those infected trees because, you know, not, not only are we protecting those jobs, but we're also protecting all of the other pine trees in the northeastern suburbs. There's no doubt that you know, we need to be ensuring that we're protecting our tree canopy uh, across the, the urban areas. You know, nobody likes to take these trees out, but these are infected trees. They do need to be removed, uh, and that will help to protect all of the other pine trees and similar species impacted by this pest across the northeastern suburbs. Is chopping the tree or the trees down is is that really the only option? Are there any other methods of controlling or or dealing with this pest once it gets in? Chopping the trees down is the, the really the only critical pathway available to us. Um, and in, ter- in terms of giant pine scale, it can't survive for long periods away from its living host. So in this circumstance, the trees are, are chopped down and then chipped up, uh, uh, and then they're, they're they're left to sit there for a quarantine period. Uh, and after that, uh, that whole area will be revegetated again. Uh, it is Department for Environment and Water uh, land, and I know the government is working very heavily on on, on identifying you know, how that that land can be revegetated. Uh, we do understand it's you know it's a difficult time. People have been people have seen these trees grow over over many years, and nobody likes to see uh, trees removed unless they have to be. And unfortunately, in this situation, um, they do have to be, um, and that's why you know we've gone out with uh, trying to make sure that people know what's going on, uh, rather than just potentially thinking trees are being chopped down for for no reason. Nathan, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour this afternoon. Thank you, Selena. Have a great day. Nathan Payne there. He's the CEO of the South Australian Forest Products Association. And I understand from Perza that the trees being removed now are the last known infected trees within the Hope Valley Reservoir Reserve. It's 10 minutes to one. Now, have you been looking at some of the prices that you're paying in the supermarket of late? We're also hearing about farmers struggling to make a profit and thinking, well, how does that work? Do you think that's worth an inquiry? Well, the former competition regulator boss who's investigating price gouging in big business, well, he says he's suspicious of the supermarket's high prices for fresh food. Former ACCC boss Alan Fells is leading an inquiry. It's been commissioned by the Australian Council of Trade Unions. It says a number of industries have been accused of using rising inflation to boost profits in a cost of living crisis. He's looking at meat prices and at the entire supply chain. It says abattoirs need to be investigated to find out if profits are being pocketed. Mr Fell spoke with Eden Heinen about this inquiry. We are trying to look across the board for the whole economy to the extent possible. And even with supermarkets, of course, we have to look at them and their markups. But also, I suppose, a special relevance to farmers, for example, it's what happens in the middle, whether it's retailers or processors or others in the chain. Has the slow decline of meat prices at the supermarket shelves compared to what many are seeing at the sale yards concerned you? Yes, because prices paid to farmers have dropped very, very heavily. They're feeling it. But if you look at supermarkets, prices don't seem to have fallen by anything like that. Indeed, they weren't falling until just recently at all. And just recently they did fall, was it between 8% or a little more than that? Yes, yes, they've they've started to come down and the industry tends to argue, well, it's just a delay. I'm always very wary of that sort of explanation. The fact is that one of the best ways, almost easiest ways of making a profit 
is if your costs fall, that you keep your prices up for a time. Eventually, you may have to bring them down, but in that interim period, uh, your profit margin can go way up. And you said that there is that delay, yet it's been, you would say, quite a, a number of months now and prices haven't fallen anywhere near what farmers are seeing. Yes, that's right. And, you know, they argue there are other costs and so on. But what I really think the public needs is some kind of public inquiry into it so we can learn what's really happening in the middle. And is there profiteering and price gouging going on or not? I'm suspicious, I think, when there's a fall in costs, you'd want it to come through in prices pretty quickly. And so what will you be doing as part of this inquiry? I'm having hearings and hearing concerns from various people uh, and then I'll do a report. But it will go on to policy questions, including whether the government should organise more investigations of prices of concern to the public, like meat prices, and an ability for the inquiry to get information that can probe and find out what's happening. When looking at the supermarkets, is there any oversight at all at the moment on pricing? No. There have been looks at it from time to time. The last look was, I don't know, 14 years ago, maybe something like that. And it was a little bit, I thought, a bit of a soft report. It is true that it is difficult to actually control and regulate supermarket prices that was tried a bit in the 70s. There are so many products and then if you attack markups, that also has various problems, including ways that business can avoid that or pass the cost back to their suppliers or whatever. Are you examining just supermarkets or will you look at the rest of the supply chain as well? Definitely look at the earlier part of it, particularly on things like meat somewhat concerned have been some mergers in earlier stages of the production process and whether they've made it easier to profit is a really important point. Now, I don't know that I can dig in in depth on my own. They're not strong legal powers, but I think if there are concerns and suspicions, we should consider asking the government to get the ACCC to use its considerable investigatory powers to get to the bottom of what's happening. That was Alan Fells, chair of the ACTU-led inquiry, speaking there with Eden Heinen. And Coles and Woolworths have both been contacted for comment. In a response, Woolies says it's appeared at several government-led committee hearings in the past 12 months to talk about inflation, competition and food security. It says it's more than happy to meet with Dr Fells as part of the inquiry he's leading. Five minutes to one. Well, finally today, have you been seeing a lot of earwigs around at your place lately? Ugh. Well, farmers are being urged to monitor for signs of European earwigs. These introduced species eat a wide range of crops from cherries to canola and citrus. A citrus essay has worked with pest control consultants to put together info about the pest. President Mark Dakey says it's been hard to find a mandarin in his orchards amid the damage. Well, any of our blocks at water or are close to patches of vines have been hammered with earwigs coming out of those patches of vines. I'm not sure if growers realise the damage they can do, but like I've got blocks with 100% no flowers or shoots on from earwig eating them. Yeah, and you've been out in the tractor checking your block the last few days. 
Yeah, you said what, like some, some blocks with 100% eaten by earwigs? Eaten by earwigs, and we're not sure. We reckon it might be millipedes as well, but we know it's earwigs because you go at night, have a look. You know, I'd encourage all growers to get out there if they've got a patch with limited growth and limited flowering, go and check for earwigs at night with a, with a strong light. What do you see when you, you think it's been damaged by earwigs or, and or caterpillars? In the daytime, you just see chewed leaves on the edges, especially the fresh growth, or in our case, there's just no leaves. They chew that hard, there is no shoot. And flowers, you'll see less flowers or you'll see no flowers. They just keep up with it. As the flowers and the leaves emerge, they'll just graze them off. Was this in your Valencia oranges or other citrus crops as well? Not in Valencias. We've got some navels that they're in. We've got some seedless Valencias that they're in and some manis that they're in. Uh, badly. I haven't seen them in Valencia's, but you know that doesn't matter as much there because if it's eaten, it's juice fruit or whatever. Is this an insect that you're often able to spray for? Well, I mean, the further we go down the line, the more chemicals we lose. So there's a limited amount of chemicals you can use to get rid of them. You've got to check pretty carefully with your packing shed and your reseller as to what you can use. But yeah, it's, it's a, definitely an emerging problem. I mean, Citrus SA put a brochure out describing all these things that I've been talking about. And I'd encourage growers also to get on the Citrus SA website because that document's on there. What are some of the tips that you have in the brochure about pest management and maybe some of the the research that's been done or or could be done to help growers more? Probably just start checking early, like in August. Make sure you don't have guards on your trees. Make sure your litter's minimal. Make sure if you've got vines anywhere near you that that's got a barrier of bait between the vines and you to try and minimise the numbers coming across. Just things like that. It's all in the brochure. Are you hearing this from a lot of other people as well? Are you worried this could you know, lead to much of a decrease in crop from the Riverland citrus for this season? I'm not sure. As I move around the place, I can say to myself, yeah, that block's got earwigs, that block's got earwigs. It's pretty easy to see, but I don't think all growers are aware and some growers might be questioning what they're doing with fertiliser and water and it's actually earwigs that eating their trees off. Mark Dakey there from Citrus SA speaking with Eliza Berlage. Hello and happy Thursday to Sonia Feldoff. Hello, Selena. I tell you what, if I could get 10 cents back on my wine and spirit bottles, I'd my piggy bank would be looking very good at the moment. <laughs> now, Queenslanders can do that as of yesterday. It was alerted to us on the text line yesterday. So we're, we thought we'd uh, check in. Where are we at here in South Australia, which, of course, previously has led the way on container mm. deposit legislation in getting that advance here in South Australia? So you'll be full bottle on that. Boom, boom. Uh, after after one o'clock today, uh, our beautiful afternoons guide dog in training, Coda, comes in uh, with her latest report. With her, his latest report card. Oh my God! You'd think after a year, I would know whether it was a him or a her. Uh, Coda will be coming in. Last time we saw Coda or didn't see Coda, he was having trouble in crowds. So hopefully he's getting better on that front. Uh, we'll check in with him. And on the music fronts today, one of uh, the members of one of Australia's favourite bands will be in the studio with me, Jim McGee. Guinea from Midnight Oil. A great program coming up with Sonia Feldhoff this afternoon. Thanks so much for your company today. I'll be back tomorrow with more Country Hour. It's news time, one o'clock. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.